Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of TheMindRenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And welcome to TMR number 281, which is the second in a short series of interviews on the situation in Ukraine. Last time, as many of you will know, we spoke to Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, who shared with us his interpretation of the events and background to what's going on there. This time for programme number two, we welcome back to the podcast Adienka Mackinday, who has kindly joined us a number of times in the past to talk about matters geopolitical. But just before we get on to that, like last time, I have just a few brief notes. Number one, as with the previous interview with Paul Craig Roberts, I am less interested in the moral questions surrounding the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I don't avoid those questions altogether, but I am more interested in the historical, geographical, political background to what has happened there. Number two, like last time, I use the format where I first invite my guests to make an opening statement, putting their general position, after which I launch into asking questions, including some of a devil's advocate nature, because I think that works well to explore the issues. And number three, most important, uh, this interview was recorded on the 8th of April 2022, so over two weeks ago. I haven't been able to get it edited and posted until now, largely due to the Easter holiday, so please do bear in mind that not everything that's said will be absolutely up to date. But as this interview is largely centred in historical matters, that isn't much of an issue anyway. So having said that, here is my latest interview with Adienka Mackinday. Uh, Adienka Mackinday trained for the law as a barrister, lectures in criminal law and public law at a university in London, UK, and has research interests in intelligence and security matters. He is regularly published online, writing on international relations, uh, politics, military history, and has been a programme consultant for BBC World Service Radio, China Radio International, and The Voice of Russia. Adienka, welcome back to the programme. It's very good to be speaking with you again. Thank you very much, Julian. Same here. So, as I said, um, we talked before many times, and uh, I recommend that people who haven't heard those previous conversations uh, go and check those out. Um, we've talked about Tony Bletzer, Tony, the, <laughs> the issues of war crimes, uh, extraordinary rendition, Islamic terrorism, and indeed Russia, which is going to be helpful for today's conversation, I'm sure. And I've got some of those notes in the background here. Um, so I do particularly suggest, if people have time and have not heard it before, to go and listen to that particular one, which is TMR number. 198 uh, Russia and Britain an enduring but fruitless rivalry now last time when I spoke to Dr Roberts I introduced things really by asking a question about well how you've been keeping during this pandemic or well scamdemic time whatever you want to call it so I'll put that question to you Adienka how have you been keeping I've been uh, biding my time um, like everybody else trying to cope with a fairly surreal situation for which I um, mm. have my own uh, views about. Uh, I thought a bit of it was quite unnecessary. Mm. But, you know, we've coped and we've seen ourselves through it mm. and um, getting on with life, which I hope everybody else is and you are yourself. Yes, yes. It's wonderful now to look out at the sunshine outside and think, ah, I'm actually free to do pretty much what I want again, <laughs> back to normal. Is it the new normal? I don't know. I don't like that phrase. <laughs> it's the normal anyway. So um, we're going to be talking about Ukraine today, of course. Now, as I said to Dr. Roberts last time, my main objective with these interviews, conversations, is to sample the opinions of different people with expertise in this area to ask hopefully also some challenging questions. I will also add that, um, as I said last time, I remain less interested in the moral questions about 
Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I don't wish to avoid that altogether, but that's not the focus of this. I'm much more interested in understanding how the world has ended up here. So I'm primarily looking for historical, geographical, political, philosophical insight to help understand that situation. And um, as I said to you before the interview, I shall be asking you in large measure to respond to many of the things that Dr. Roberts said last time. So I was astonished that the invasion took place. I thought all talk of this being about to happen was essentially propaganda. I was mistaken in that. um, And I thought the Russians were just amassing on the border as a threat and that wasn't going to be carried out. But it did happen. So my question to you is, did you expect that to happen? And um, what was your reaction to that? Well, I was uh, pretty astounded myself. Um, Mm. I wasn't expecting it. It seemed something almost out of the blue. Um, there was that uh, build-up over a number of months, and probably even longer than a number of months, because there seemed to be a diffusion of the situation and then a revival of it, of Russian forces being massed on the Ukrainian border. And Vladimir Putin is a very careful, calculating person, a man actually not given to impulsive behavior, although there might be a case that that might have occurred here, we still need to find out a bit more. But I was um, really taken aback. And um, I think we will need to judge things also for information that is yet to come out in the future. For instance, apparent um, allegation that the Ukrainian forces were massing on Donbass to finally take the whatever territory was held by the separatists mm. and also the issue of uh, the biolabs so i was astounded i have to say yes maybe come back to that business about the biolabs not quite sure what to make of that story um it's interesting that you bring up this possibly impulsive side to putin's character which i don't really think of it that way but yeah maybe maybe there is something to that in this particular case maybe it's revealed something of that Well, I think that um, all nations will tend to have a plan of attack, even with those that may be perceived as uh, friendly nations. I mean, just a very quick side example would be, say, the United States of America in the early 20th century. It had detailed battle plans on how to counteract the British Empire and at the same time to counteract the influence of Japan in the Pacific Obviously, one plan of action was put through and the other wasn't, but both have been disclosed. And I think, obviously, Russia had a pre-existing battle plan of what to do with uh, about Ukraine in the case of a conflict. And I feel that uh, there were certain things that happened at the Munich conference where President uh, Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine mentioned uh, the issue of Ukraine joining NATO and rearming. Mm. And um, I'm just wondering if that may have played a part in this trigger Mm. of Putin. Okay, so rather like last time, I'm going to invite you to give us some background for this invasion from your own perspective. So uh, don't feel that you have to go on for a long time like uh, Dr. Roberts. If you don't want to, it's up to you. If you want to, please do. So um, I shall launch then into questions after you've given us this perspective. So, um, all right, here it is. Uh, Putin is the new Hitler. The invasion is totally unprovoked. And if there is any history at all behind what happened in Ukraine, the Russians have got that wrong anyway. So discuss. (laughs) What's your perspective on this? 
Well, I think there has to be more to this than this sort of black and white, good and evil, cartoonish portrayal that we see in the Western mainstream media. Um, I certainly feel that you cannot just see this as a situation of uh, American good versus uh, Russian evil, because we're talking about Ukraine, but fundamental to any understanding of this conflict is the conflict between America and Russia. If you cannot grasp that, you know, the reasonable person, if you, if you cannot grasp that, then you really have no understanding of what is happening with this tragedy. Um, so the default position of uh, America being this force of uh, good, of uh, this Jeffersonian empire of uh, liberty in conflict with this uh, Russian evil empire that is an authoritarian entity, nestled uh, behind an iron curtain is really a false one so what i will do julian is to invite your listeners to examine history and uh, contemporary events uh, with an open mind and those who are objective uh, open to reason critical thinking as opposed to those who are close-minded and they're biased by default and dependent on the received wisdom provided by the agencies of uh, social engineering, including the corporate mainstream media, they will be unable, if they are objective, they will be unable to ignore uh, the compelling evidence that indicates that the United States is the author, or at least the co-author of uh, the tragedy of Ukraine as we see it today. So before we talk about the ending of the Cold War and the putative defeat of international communism with the dissolution of uh, the Soviet Union and the dissovietization of Eastern Europe, uh, we can even start from the perspective of geostrategy, uh, something I've discussed on this program before, uh, the Halford-McKinder concept of you know, land powers and sea powers and how Mackinder posited uh, the idea of a certain group of nations or a nation controlling the world. And it's all centered on Eurasia, precisely where Russia sits. And Russia is nestled between Europe and Asia. And Mackinder's thesis was that he who can command this landmass, the heartland, of uh, Eurasia will then be able to control what he called the world island. Uh, but an entrance into the landmass of uh, what is effectively Russia is through Eastern Europe. Uh, certainly, um, Ukraine fits the bill to weaken Russia, to make Russia pliant so that the West, uh, the United States-led West, can maintain its uh, hegemony. One aspect is to weaken Russia through Ukraine. And I think we're seeing that now. We've been seeing this develop over the previous decades. Now, taking Mackinder's theory into something more practical, we then come to Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was a national security advisor to Jimmy Carter, and a very well-known figure in uh, Washington, D.C., and a very influential figure at that. And uh, Brzezinski's grand chessboard gives a good indication of how you are, uh, United States policy 
is being influenced uh, by this geostrategic view that uh, America needs to maintain hegemony, uh, which unipolar world came about after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And what uh, Brzezinski was saying was that Russia needs to be intimidated into military subjugation and uh, a political surrender of its sovereignty. So this is not out of the blue. This is something in which we can latch onto. I notice those who refer to Russia and this idea that Russia wants to recreate the Soviet empire and the Tsarist empire, um, they have little to rely on, I'm I'm afraid. Uh, Yet there is a mass of information, including large texts such as Brzezinski's work, with many position papers, uh, previously classified memos, and, uh, of course, deeds on the part of uh, American policy. So the idea is to subjugate Russia as a project, regardless of who rules Russia, whether it's so-called democratic person or an authoritarian person. Um, The expansion of NATO is one aspect of this issue, When the Cold War ended, in a sense, uh, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization had served its purpose. And with the dissolution of the Warsaw Pact, what needed to happen in Europe was a new security architecture needed to be developed. Uh, But this has all been put to waste, I will argue, by United States policy. That has included NATO expansion, uh, disregarding an agreement between the leaders of America and the Soviet Union, that NATO did not expand an inch because it was a bargain for allowing German reunification and for Germany to remain within NATO. Uh, So apart from NATO expansion, the other aspect has been the dismantling, again on the part of the Americans, of the host of nuclear treaties which had been developed during the Cold War era. Treaties such as, you know, the test ban treaties, but it's all built up to the strategic arms limitation treaties, SALT 1 and SALT 2. And even though SALT 2 wasn't uh, ratified by the United States Senate, you still have a situation where it was honored. Now, the nuclear architecture of balance of power or balance of terror has now been dismantled. And that, again, has been through the proactive stances of the United States, which withdrew from the anti-ballistic missile treaty. It installed missile shields in Eastern Europe, and also it reneged on the International Nuclear Forces uh, Treaty. So that's the military aspect of intimidating Russia into subjugation, expansion of NATO, and this idea of dismantling of the nuclear security system. And the second aspect is economics. Again, putting pressure on Russia by provoking Russia and responding with sanctions. And I think what we do have at present is the desired endgame, that all these proactive stances by the West in terms of provoking Russia, I think uh, the late uh, Professor Stephen Cohen put it correctly by characterizing much of America's uh, foreign policy as being proactive 
and the Russian side has been reactive to things. Um, I think uh, the sanctions, the imposition of sanctions has been a very telling aspect of how to subjugate Russia. And uh, the end game, as we see it, was to provoke Russia into such a situation that they would mount a shock and awe series of sanctions, which would be designed to destroy the Russian economy and institute what they felt would be regime change. So that two-pronged aspect is my argument as to this background that is based on an issue of geostrategy, that America must maintain its hegemony in the world. And I feel this is where we are now. And if we don't have that in our background, we have no means of understanding and comprehending uh, this tragedy that has befallen Ukraine and the world. Excellent. Thank you very much indeed for that. So, as I said, I'm going to uh, play a bit of devil's advocate here and uh, come back at you with some of these points. Um, So, all right, the first thing that I want to ask about is this very, very famous quote, this not an inch eastward, which was this verbal, not written down, verbal promise that uh, James Baker gave to Gorbachev back in 1990. This is often spoken about However, I'm going to put to you a counter-argument that seems to be pretty popular at the moment, and I'm getting this from Frederick Kagan, who is an American resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and a former professor of military history at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. Um, I saw him interviewed recently by, of all people, Jordan Peterson, who I I mostly like. Um, um, Before I say what Kagan says, I'm going to say I'm a little bit suspicious of him not least because his brother is Robert Kagan, a neoconservative scholar, and his sister-in-law is Victoria Newland. Uh, However, I will uh, put what he says about this. He says that this idea of the not one inch eastward is revisionism. He wants to clean up the history about this. And he says that that assurance was given in the context of German reunification in 1990. But at the time, the Soviet empire was still there. That didn't end until 1991. And so, you know, the Warsaw Pact countries were still in place. So that couldn't possibly be applied to those countries. But they were still in the Soviet Union. So what do you make of that argument? Uh, I don't think it has uh, much basis. It seems to me to be something more of a presumptive talking point. Uh, It's sort of muddy in the waters. I think over the years, it has been established beyond doubt, because at one point, uh, people were actually denying such a promise was made. And I think uh, having gathered all the recollections of the parties in memoirs and actually documents that could be found in, in state archives, it's unquestionably the case that it was claimed that NATO should not expand. This, um, I think, is is in itself uh, revisionism, not the original argument that uh, there was a pledge by the American um, leaders of the day, James Baker included, that NATO was not uh, expected to expand. I mean, there's uh, there's an inexorable logic there that, okay, Germany is going to be reunited. So the East, 
an industrial powerhouse within the Warsaw Pact, within Comic-Con, all of a sudden is uh, merging with Germany to create an even bigger power in Central Europe. Um, how this could happen with it, without a bargain uh, is a little befuddling. So I think um, there is a lot of evidence out there that does uh, contradict this thesis uh, by Mr. Kagan. Um, but also, we can ride roughshod over that because we can say that, look, when NATO, uh, the idea of NATO expansion was made in the 1990s, when the pliant Boris Yeltsin was president of Russia, there were Russian objections. That may be moving on from his specific arguments, but um, I would just say that there's enough documentation, archival, uh, anecdotal, that uh, puts a lie to Professor Kagan's argument. Yes, I will direct listeners again to the George Washington University National Security Archive page, uh, NATO Expansion, what Gorbachev heard. A very, very interesting collection of all kinds of documents there. There was one which I noted in particular, document number two, uh, Douglas Hurd, uh, so the British Foreign Secretary at the time, reporting on what the German Foreign Minister had said. Um, now, let me see if I can get that quote. Um, all right, so the British Memorandum, this is quoting Douglas Hurd, the British Memorandum specifically quotes Genscher, that's the German Foreign Minister, as saying, sorry? Hans-Dietrich Genscher. Thank you very much. Um, as saying, quote... That when he, that is Genscher, talked about not wanting to extend NATO, this is, by the way, this is in 1990, that when he talked about not wanting to extend NATO, that applied to other states besides the German Democratic Republic. The Russians must have some assurance that if, for example, the Polish government left the Warsaw Pact one day, they would not join NATO the next. So there was that understanding around at the time that this was on the cards and Russia needed to have that assurance. Absolutely. And uh, mm. this is why Boris Yeltsin's uh, government was up in arms about the whole thing. And um, more evidence that um, even if we re remove Vladimir Putin and the current construction of uh, Russia from the picture, this idea of the West wanting to move towards Russia and have it dismantled, you know, just so that it does not rise as a power and it serves as a pliant uh, avenue for Western energy needs, this is always on the agenda, disregarding uh, whoever rules Russia. It's a project. <laughs> As we're on the subject, or as I've brought up Frederick Kagan, um, could I bring up another issue that he mentions that I think you did touch on in the previous conversation, and you said then that you were not convinced by the theory, but he brings it up. Um, he's rather keen on the third Rome theory of Russian state self-conception. Um, so you correct me if I've got it wrong, but I mean, basically, I think this is the idea that Moscow is now somehow the true centre of Christendom, and the centre of Christendom has shifted over the centuries from Rome, then to Constantinople, and then finally to Moscow. So now Russia has this um, self-conception of a special mission, an almost messianic mission for the world. And so this would help to understand Vladimir Putin's desire to remake the Russian Empire. Um, I know you're not persuaded by that. Could you tell us something more about that theory and why you don't find it convincing? 
Yes, I think uh, I remember I did mention that in our previous discussion. Yes. And uh, it, it appeared that uh, there was this sort of a, a disconnect in terms of how uh, the West and the East, that is Russia, developed, you know, with the West after the fall of the Roman Empire, you had uh, the Middle Ages and uh, a whole train of events leading to the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. Whereas with Russia, there was a continuum from uh, Rome, at least through Byzantium, the eastern uh, side. And as uh, you know, the centuries developed, there was this conception of, uh, yes, Russia as being the center point of uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church and uh, becoming this third Rome. And throughout Russian history, I mean, certainly uh, at the time of the Tsar, I don't think any serious argument could be made. Uh, the Tsarist Empire tried to expand on, on, on that basis, you know, say in the late 19th century, and we get into the 20th century, we've got the Soviet Union. I'm not sure if the argument posits uh, the ideology of uh, Marx and Lenin as being a substitute mm. for that. But I would only say that um, it is something that, yes, we need to take into consideration for reasons of balance and reasons of objective um, examination. But as I was saying, where we have this profundity of evidence in regard to Western intentions and this project to subjugate Russia, I don't see the opposite from Russia. Uh, you know, all I see is Russia reacting. Mm. You know, if you are positing yourself as this messianic force, then mm. I think Russia would be more proactive militarily, culturally, etc. Russia has certainly resurrected the Orthodox Church and is trying to find its uh, Christian roots. And it tries to position itself as being more of a moral force than the quote-unquote decadent West, you know, hmm. which pays heed to uh, what Putin referred to as alternative lifestyles and mm -hmm. uh, other aspects of Western society. Um, I don't think uh, it plays out, as I said, um, simply because of the reactive nature of Russia to events. If there was something about it, it would only be aspirational. Just looking at Russia, I don't want to go off board uh, too much, but just looking at Russia as a nation, look, it is very corrupt. Apparently not as corrupt as Ukraine, according to a lot of these uh, indices that are created. Um, it has a very high suicide rate. Uh, it has a high abortion rate. It has a decline in population. Dem demographics are going down. And you know, drug abuse and other things are rife there. So um, it may aspire to be a Christian nation. That is difficult in itself. But to sort of spread this uh, messianic goal to impose itself on others, I would, I would say no. And positing things within this idea of, um, as uh, the late uh, Professor Stephen Cohen put it, proactive West and the reactive um, Russia, um, Georgia. Uh, when it was uh, under uh, President uh, Mikhail Shakasvili, uh, was encouraged to attack South Ossetia, which wanted to join Russia. And um, Russia responded, some of its citizens had been killed, uh, by invading Georgia. But what it did is, after some uh, months of occupation, it withdrew from Georgia. So uh, that, in one sense, just puts a a lie to this idea about re-establishing the hmm. Soviet or the 
Tsarist Empire because Georgia had been uh, part of the Russian Empire, the Soviet Empire for you know, a combination of uh, a few hundred years uh, or thereabouts. Yeah. So you do, in fact, agree with Paul Craig Roberts there that yeah, I, I, Georgia I, I, is not an indication of Russian expansionism and therefore also the same with the Donbass. And presumably then you wouldn't anticipate that Russia would be interested in going into Moldova using Transnistria and all that sort of thing. This, this isn't a, a pattern that you see. Yes, I, I don't see that pattern. It's like taking Crimea that was a kind of a essential minimum action that was based on the advice given to Putin by his national security advisors. He didn't go for the whole of Ukraine. I mean, I think, and even now, this so-called special operation has always been geared towards the East. There's been no indication of Russia having an intention to invade the Western part of Ukraine. And its military strategy appears to have been to uh, encircle and to keep certain parts of Ukraine away from its activities in um, the Donbass. So even that shows you a, a kind of a calibration, which is not an idea of a total expansionist vision. Mm. Um, and there's no evidence for it. That is all I will say about that. Okay, well, let me come back to Vladimir Putin himself. Now, Kagan talks in terms of a certain paranoia that Putin himself has brought to modern Russia. So maybe we could think in terms of the Third Rome concept as something that Putin has latched onto in connection with a tradition that does in fact already exist there to some extent, and also in connection with his new relationship with the Russian Orthodox Church. So maybe Putin has managed to persuade the Russian people that it should fear the West, that all the troubles of the Yeltsin era were basically caused by the West. So this, we might say, is a kind of new mentality in Russia that's sometimes called Putinism. I'm not quite sure what that's supposed to mean. But so, so maybe Putin himself has some form of this third Rome mentality and is gradually building that view of the world in the Russian population. What do you think of that? Um, again, I think from all the evidence, um, I would say a blanket no. <laughs> I think certainly if he's suggesting that Putin is displaying a form of paranoia about Russian security, then he he could not be further from the truth um, in the sense of this being something uniquely Putin. Putin is obviously worried. Uh, Russians are worried. And this is just merely a continuum of the Russian mentality. So you need to delve into history to understand that, that Russia is this landmass and it doesn't have these natural barriers to protect it in terms of uh, large mountains, uh, wide rivers of that sort. And so therefore, in the Russian psyche, you know, we, we have to go back to the tales of Prince uh, Igor, which I think we discussed in my previous appearance on the on mm. Mind Renewed, mm. that this idea of Russian insecurity, because of persons willing to bring it down as a nation to weaken it, is a real one that has covered the ages. So I would say, well, if there's any truth to that, there's nothing unique about it that is presented by Vladimir Putin. Mm. As I said, Boris Yeltsin's uh, government was aghast and complained vigorously when the Clinton administration set out plans to expand NATO. So if we trace it throughout history, where we see Russia being invaded by powers or combination of powers, including smaller nations in league 
with uh, larger nations to weaken Russia, we cannot uh, just uh, narrow it down to Putinism. So, you know, you have to go back to the Mongols, the Teutonic Knights, the combination of the Polish Commonwealth and Lithuanians. Uh, before we get to Nazi Germany, there were other forces. Um, and now we have the American empire wanting to mm. subjugate uh, Russia for the reasons I've already explained. But if we look at things from the point of view of the former Eastern Bloc countries themselves, I mean, it was their desire, so I understand, to belong to NATO. Mm. And Russia itself... And this is a point that the uh, academic Christina Spohr, who I'll come back to in a minute probably, uh, points out, is that Russia was a signatory to this uh, NATO-Russian council. Uh, so I have here in front of me a founding act on mutual relations, cooperation and security between NATO and the Russian Federation. And as part of that, Russia has signed to say, well, you know, countries can choose their own security arrangements. That's up to them. So if the desire to belong to NATO came from these individual countries that were former Soviet, um, well, that's up to them, isn't it? So how can Russia now be complaining and saying, it's the West coming to our border? It's already said that's fine by us. <laughs> yes, I think... Um that cannot be just the, the sort of the game changer, because, of course, we have, for instance, an individual treaty between Russia and Ukraine uh, from the 1990s, which says that both sides should not do acts which um, encourage uh, destabilization of either nation or either nation's security. So um, mm. I would only say that um, that may be uh, some useful evidence. Uh, obviously, it sounds very rational to say that uh, every nation should uh, seek its uh, destiny and be free to choose its associations. Unfortunately, many of these nations in Eastern Europe are only willing to accept military expansion by United States because it brings them financial rewards and, and benefits. You know, uh, Ukraine is a good example of uh, an Eastern European country that is being used as a client state with, of course, the ultimate aim of upsetting Russia, of getting at Russia. You know, a good example was the, the missile shields which uh, were installed. I don't know if that, that was in Poland and Romania certainly designated to be installed there. And, you know, the, the Americans were very duplicitous about this. They claimed that uh, those missile shields were being installed to prevent unprovoked attacks from rogue nations like North Korea and Iran, rogue nations from the point of view of, you know, United States and the West. And, okay, Putin then put them up to the task and said, well, why don't we share this uh, technology? Let's put it on the Iranian-Azerbaijani border. And of course, that request was ignored. Um, I don't think Russia can escape its history. We have to take that into account. Uh, the massacre at Katyn was committed by the NKVD on the uh, Lavrenti barrier. And, you know, Russia took over half of uh, Poland uh, after the Nazi uh, invasion of Poland, you know, following on the um, non-aggression pact, the Ribbentrop and um, Molotov pact. Um, all of these things are real enough, but Russia also has, in its national memory, invasions from the West. And by the West, I mean Poland, on the Marshal Pilsudski uh, invaded, 
so it's not a one-way street. They may want to join NATO or, or they feel they may need to make certain security arrangements. But um, the feeling is that we have to go back to that issue of when the Cold War ended, NATO's purpose, NATO had no purpose. And so what needed to be done through statesmanship and statecraft was to create a new uh, security architecture in Europe. And, you know, just one more thing. I mean, talk about these nations being free to choose. Um, it was on several occasions mentioned that uh, Russia itself might join NATO, you know. Right. So, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes, well, it's all very well, isn't it, to point to a document like that and say, well, they've signed that. Yeah. But you can't just pick out one clause in the document and say, well, they're committed to that and that's the end of it. You've got to read Really, you should read the whole document. <laughs> I haven't even done that. But just reading a little bit more of the document, it's very clear to me. The whole thing is set in a context of sharing and cooperation and openness. And yet, you were saying about these missile uh, interceptors and the like moving across into that former Soviet area um, and disputes about that. Well, that doesn't speak of openness. And in fact, I found um, an article that possibly sheds further light on this from the Acronym Institute for Disarmament Diplomacy. They speak here about what does NATO nuclear policy entail, and a little quote from them here. Despite serious concerns raised by Russia, the Bush administration pushed hard to have military bases in Poland and the Czech Republic for missile interceptors and tracking radar to support U.S. ballistic missile defense uh, BMD deployments. Then, moreover, these countries have privately raised the possibility that they might also join in, quote, nuclear sharing arrangements. Such developments would antagonize Russia and destabilize European security further. So, I mean, I don't know whether that's true, but taking that at face value, um, if there are these private conversations going on, I'm quite sure the Russians are aware of those <laughs> private conversations, would think, well, this is hardly openness. This is hardly cooperation. This speaks of a betrayal behind the scenes. So that would kind of nuance this just bald statement where they've signed something and therefore committed to the notion that all these ex-Soviet states should be free to do exactly what they like. And, you know, it's a much more murky situation, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, uh, as I said, it brings them financial benefits and that to some of these nations, which were previously relatively impoverished, is, uh, you know, it helps their economies, it helps certain members of their elites. Um, I was also thinking about, you know, this uh, focusing on just one thing. I mean, mm -hmm. it's often said that, well, the agreement reached, you know, about um, German reunification and the alleged pledge not to expand NATO wasn't reduced into writing, as if uh, that is the be-all and end-all of things. I mean, at the end of the Cuban Missile Crisis, when uh, the tensions were diffused, one aspect of that uh, was that um, the Soviet Union would withdraw Jupiter missiles from Turkey. And uh, in return, the United States would make a pledge not to try to invade Cuba. That was an agreement, and that was an agreement that was abided by. So, you know, there are agreements that don't need to be put into writing. Uh, so it seems that, uh, yes, uh, certain sides to an argument will latch onto something, mm. whereas we still need to be looking at the overall picture. And um, as I say, while my rationale for explaining what my views are may appear 
to support what the Russian claims are, I'm still doing so from what I believe is a position of objectivity. In other words, all the evidence points to this idea of subjugating Russia. And again, this is regardless of whoever is in power in Russia. Yes, um, I am putting to you, you say that you're being objective about this, and of course everybody will claim they're being objective about this, which is fair enough. Um, I'm putting a number of these points to you from this academic called Christina Spohr, as I mentioned before, and um, no doubt she will claim to be very objective about matters, but I will just say that she was at one point a research fellow in the Secretary General's private office at NATO headquarters in Brussels. So we'll make of that what we will. Um, Arinka, then what do you make of this extremely famous quote that I put to Paul Craig Roberts? So this is from Vladimir Putin speaking in 2005, quote, above all, we should acknowledge that the collapse of the Soviet Union was a major geopolitical disaster of the century, end quote. Does that not indicate to you that he wants to rebuild not necessarily the Soviet Union, but Russia itself? Yes, he wants to rebuild Russia, but not at the expense of taking territory or hook, line and and sinker. I think that is one statement that is latched onto, almost like uh, Tanaka Memorial, you know, the imaginary document uh, that was claimed to exist about Japanese territorial demands in the Second World War, although Japan's subsequent behavior appeared to match what was in that document. Um, You have nothing like that in regard to Russia. Basically, uh, what Putin was saying, if people look at uh, his speech as a whole, was saying that that was a disaster on two accounts. I mean, first of all, it was a disaster in the sense that central authority had failed in the Russian state twice within one century. That is a great calamity, and it's a disaster. And it's something that gnaws at the Russian psyche, Mm. because in Russia, at various intervals in its history, there have been times of chaos, you know, like the time of the Troubles after the death of um, Tsar Ivan, known as the Terrible, or the Awesome in another translation. (laughs) Yes, yes. Uh, What Putin was saying was that the collapse therefore meant that... uh, the American empire had no counterweight. It was now a unipolar world. According to Francis Fukuyama, it was the end of history. (laughs) And so it gave the um, Americans uh, carte blanche to try to mold the world in the image it thought befitting of an American um, hegemon. And so this is where the so-called Wolfowitz uh, doctrine comes into being. And Putin was complaining that uh, America invading uh, countries, Afghanistan, Iraq, and later on after 2005, we obviously saw Libya and the covert sponsoring of uh, the invasion of Syria. Um, What he was saying was that uh, America was actually sponsoring or encouraging um, lawlessness and that this uh, obviously was affecting uh, the world in a negative sense, that a resurrected power uh, such as Russia could keep the United States in check. So that was one aspect of his motivations for saying that. The second aspect of that was he was basically pointing out that uh, when it collapsed, this was another chaos, you know, another time of trouble. 
has uh, occurred uh, in Russia's past, where the people suffered a great deal. The people were exploited by foreign powers. In the past, the foreign powers were Poland and Lithuania invading Muscovy. Now it was the Americans coming over in the disguise of the uh, Harvard boys to advise (laughs) uh, the ex-Soviet Union on how to become capitalists. And it led to the wholesale rape and plunder of uh, Russia's resources. And uh, the death rates uh, heightened up, alcoholism increased, because the safety nets provided by the previous Soviet system were no longer available. And we know this affected Mr. Putin. He did admit that he had to make ends meet at one point, you know, and he, he worked as a taxi driver in, uh, in St. Petersburg. Mm. So, you know, Russia was really uh, hurting in that period. I mean, mm. this was the, the rise of the oligarchs whose plunder of uh, Russia was facilitated by their allies in the West. And so on, on just on those two accounts, the aspect of American unipolarity and the negativity that brought to world affairs by America riding roughshod over uh, multilateral agreements, and uh, secondly, mm-hmm. the effect on Russia. So it's totally misunderstood and misinterpreted, probably out of ignorance, but certainly deliberately by others who should be in the know. Well, I'm going to add one more quote to it. I and mean, it's not to disagree with what you said, but uh, just because last time I said I could only find one quote to that effect, but a, a listener very kindly sent me another one, which mm, is attributed to Vladimir Putin, so I don't know whether it really is, but anyway, uh, it goes, whoever does not regret the collapse of the USSR has no heart, and whoever wants to restore it has no head. Now, this one is rather interesting because I then looked to find what I think is the Russian to this. And then there's a translation of that, which gives it a little nuance. Let me say that. Uh, Whoever does not regret the collapse of the USSR has no heart. And whoever wants to restore it to its former form has no head. Apparently, if it is indeed he who said it, that's what it originally was. Um, so that's a bit ambiguous there, isn't it? That could suggest that he does in fact want to, uh, to restore it, not as a communist empire, but nevertheless as an emperor. But I I agree, that doesn't really... uh, These are only little quotes, and no doubt even if these were in fact his words, they may have been taken out of context again. Yes, that's the first time I'm I'm hearing of that. Mm. Um, But yes, I mean, the the second um, aspect of the quote, yes, it would seem to suggest that, and he has gone on record as saying that mistakes were made and uh, Russia is not a communist state anymore. So yeah, to rebuild Russia... But um, not, as he said, uh, as he's claimed to have said, uh, you wouldn't want to restore the Soviet Union if you had the correct head on. Yes, that would fit into something that is reasonable and not malevolent, I would have thought. Um, Yes, it depends how you interpret um, it, doesn't it? It is rather ambiguous. Yes. (laughs) Going back again to Kagan... um, Okay, the Yeltsin years were terrible, very, very difficult for Russia. But the idea here is that it's wrong to blame the West because this really was a a necessary process of the opening up of Russia. And it was going to be difficult once the structures were removed of the previous order. um, You're going to end up with people exploiting the situation. You were going to get your oligarchs and the poverty and the great wealth, etc. And just to blame the West is a mistake. Um, I think it it could have been more calibrated. And I think um, we have seen this pattern 
in the past. I think what happened in Russia was an extreme form of what was called a structural adjustment. Mm. In other words, at the end of sort of the 1970s and the coming to power of the likes of uh, Ronald Reagan in the United States, Margaret Thatcher in Britain, and Volcker, the Federal Reserve, and you get monetarism as being the dominant factor. You get in laissez-faire and you're moving away from the kind of socialism in a mild sense, uh, sometimes in a hard sense, that was prevalent in some Western economies. You know, the Keynesian way of doing things. And um, the IMF also reflected that by supporting what was called development um, economics. When you get to the early 80s, uh, late 70s, early 80s, then you have uh, a new form of looking at things, uh, a more, you know, unbridled capitalism. And so structural adjustment programs were foisted around the world. And this involved, you know, in return for getting loans or uh, some form of aid from the global institutions, um, you would have to sell your resources at rock bottom prices. And, uh, you know, uh, everything would be sort of pegged to the dollar so that your currency was essentially worthless. But this was supposed to be good. It was supposed to be beating you into shape. But it, it did provide a means by which Western interest would come and buy your resources at rock bottom prices. It did happen across the world. Um, I think in, in Russia, what really puts a lie to things is that the social structures, you know, if there was somebody, you know, and there wasn't somebody in, in Boris Yeltsin and the people who were advising him, uh, like the man uh, named Chubias, you know, there would have provided some form of a safety net. You know, you don't go from one extreme to another. You sort of calibrate things. And that is very suspect. And I think uh, Naomi Klein and her book, you know, The Shock Theory, gives insight into the methods that were used. So, of course, these uh, oligarchs, they hailed from Russia, uh, but they were not acting in the interests of the Russian state. They were criminals, essentially. Uh, who rose to power. And at the end of the day, they were acting against Russia's interest. And a lot of Russia's resources were were being extracted and redirected to the West. It was a great transfer of wealth away from Russia. And how do you apportion blame? You know, um, uh, that is obviously something that can be a talking point. But to totally blame the Russians um, would be um, not the correct thing to do. I think uh, the Americans had the power to impose its will on Russia and the Russians were taken advantage of. And one of the things Vladimir Putin did was to put a stop to that. You know, use the wealth of Russia to stabilize prices, you know, to introduce uh, some sort of a minimum social security system. People could get paid pensions. That sort of thing was missing uh, from that time. And uh, I think it's I think it's part of the proof of the pudding was that um, was it uh, Lawrence Summers or certainly uh, one or two people were fined for their activities in Russia. So it was a case of mass plunder, I would I would argue. Mm. Okay, well, you've very helpfully guided us through a good deal about the past. Let's turn our attention now more towards the present or the very recent past. Um, do you agree with Paul Craig Roberts that essentially 
the West has deliberately provoked Russia into this action so as to sever relations between Europe and Russia in order to protect the US-led Western empire, both economically and politically. Do you think it was deliberately provoked for that reason? Um, in one word, yes. But again, we mustn't forget you know, the words of uh, the learned scholars and diplomats of the past. Uh, we mentioned George F. Kennan in my last interview with you, mm. the architect of containment during the uh, Cold War. And he mentioned this idea of NATO expansion using states to prod at Russia would lead to a calamity. And Jack Matlock, uh, an ex-US ambassador, also um, William J. Burns, another former ambassador, you know, all points to what has happened in the present. Um, you know, and I think, uh, I, I don't know if uh, the likes of Victoria Newland, who was involved in orchestrating what was effectively a, a coup d'etat in February 2014, will try to take the credit as Brzezinski did in luring, saying he, the, the Soviet Union was lured into Afghanistan uh, and claim the credit now that uh, Russia has been lured into Ukraine mm. to bleed it dry through some sort of a, a long-term insurgency which the West will support. Um, I believe that there was a provocation simply from the point of view is that there has to be a break in limit. And Vladimir Putin has acted, I feel, uh, reactively, but in a very careful and calibrated way. One would have to ask Nord Stream 2, that gas pipeline from uh, Russia to Germany, which uh, successive U.S. administrations were fearful of and wanted uh, to be um, cancelled. You know, why would this happen <laughs> when that project has just been completed? Yes, it's highly suspicious, uh, indeed. Yes. So I think, you know, the accumulation of the background evidence that I have given about this two-pronged military and economic approach towards Russia would give credence to the fact that uh, Russians have been provoked. And as I say, we still need more evidence. But um, maybe after they have this, unfortunately, what might turn out to be a massive battle in uh, the eastern Donbass, which, because I believe the Russian forces have uh, encircled uh, the Ukrainian forces uh, in the east, where a lot of them were massed, uh, I think we will be able to work out this uh, idea of a, a kind of a final provocation, because that final provocation may not just have been Zelensky at the recent uh, Munich Security Conference talking about rearming the Ukraine with nuclear weapons and joining NATO, but may actually have had something to do with a concerted effort to transfer uh, a lot of uh, Ukraine to transfer a lot of its military resources to uh, the east to actually physically retake all the parts of uh, the Donbass region, which of course is uh, split between the former autonomous oblasts of uh, Luhansk and uh, Donetsk. I think um, we will have an idea about how many soldiers of the Ukrainian army are within the eastern uh, part, and that would form the basis of uh, the idea of uh, one final provocation uh, too much. 
which of course the Russians would find intolerable to have the whole of Donbass overrun by Ukraine. Uh, can I go back to, you mentioned about Nord Stream 2 and how uh, Washington has been very concerned about that development for many years. But um, is it not also the case that Moscow has been very concerned about Ukraine's potential access to vast amounts of gas, which of course would be a competitor to Russia, but also would make Ukraine a prime candidate for joining the EU and NATO. And so is there a big part of the Russian calculation actually to cut off Ukraine from those natural resources? So obviously, I realise how Crimea is important from uh, the point of view of the, the fleet at Sebastopol and the access through to the Mediterranean, through the Bosphorus, and um, the, the fact there are Russian speakers there, etc, etc. But there are these trillions of cubic metres of, of gas underneath the Black Sea. You've also got a lot of uh, shale gas, I believe, on the edge of the Donbass as well. So is this a big part of the calculation to cut off those resources to make Ukraine as weak as possible? Uh, I have no doubt that that would be a factor. I think um, it was going to take a good while for these resources to be put in a position where they could be extracted. It wasn't going to happen the next day. But um, I, I would agree. I would agree with that. Mm. I, th I don't think uh, one can put the point of view that that would not have factored in, in Russia's intentions, which would obviously meld in with its overall strategy of reacting to what it sees as, uh, you know, the militarization of Ukraine. Uh, you know, NATO weapons and uh, training resources against the Russian-speaking people. That's the fundamental issue here, and I think it's. Uh, is, is is it? Can I? Can I? Yeah. Can I just come back at that? Um, this business about the Russian-speaking people. I realise that it is an issue, and when Putin speaks, it seems to be the issue. But that would almost necessarily be the case when you're making a statement to people you want to bring up emotive issues. But I, I wonder just how much that really is an issue. Um, when you think back to the fact that, okay, the people in the Donbass were not recognized as fully independent by Russia. Um, there were the Minsk Accords and the idea was that the Donbass should remain part of Ukraine, but should have autonomy, etc. Was that thinking in terms of long-term strategy, was that actually in Russia's interest not to either embrace the Donbass or to recognize its independence because that would create a situation within Ukraine where you would almost inevitably have civil war. You, you would have instability. That would be all part of trying to destabilize Ukraine. Uh, I, I just, I'm just not sure to what extent concern for fellow Russian speakers really is a really fundamental issue for Putin. Yeah. Um, I think it's it's certainly part of the concern. You know, the the overarching issue about um, Ukraine being the potential location of uh, lethal weapons that could be used against Russia itself mm. is a fundamental feature. Yes. But I think the idea of the Russian speakers, you see, there are two contrasting views here that after what was basically, what was essentially a coup d'etat in February. I know the Western narrative, mainstream uh, narrative, is that there was a popular revolution. The corrupt Yanukovych uh, ran off yes. and uh, yes. good democratic feelings triumphed. Uh, that is unsustainable mm. because Yanukovych for sure was a corrupt man, mm. but there's no way that he would have 
run off without being intimidated. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the starting point before we lead on to the Donbass people and the, the Russian-speaking people is that within this coup, what made it a decisive overthrow was the use of these ultra-nationalist, far-right, neo-Nazi paramilitary groups. They made the difference. Uh, groups like uh, Pravi Sector, Svoboda, uh, Splinia Sprava, they actually uh, physically got into government buildings and um, they are actually believed to have sown the confusion at Maidan Square by shooting about protesters and um, yeah. uh, uh, the police. And that was actually the difference. I mean, there's a whole welter of these far-right groups who get a lot of their ideology, not necessarily from Nazism, but also from Ukrainian nationalism. And when Ukrainian nationalism has manifested itself, it has done so in a very rabid, ugly manner, you know, which uh, led to um, pogroms against Jews, Poles, and certainly anti-Russian um, sentiment. So mm-hmm. once these people played a part, I mean, there was also, there's a group called C-16, mm-hmm. you know, which is, oh, is it C-14? I think C-14, based on the words by a man called David Lane, a white uh, nationalist from America, who alludes to um, something about protecting the white race and the future of white children. And one of the leaders was recently, or not too long ago, was speaking about Maidan and said, he he basically said that um, in his politically incorrect way, he said that uh, the protests would have been a gay parade without these ultra-nationalist groups playing a decisive role in uh, intimidating um, Yanukovych and overthrowing his government. And once that happened, I don't think the people of the Donbass needed any sort of encouragement from Moscow to, first of all, be fearful Hmm. and then to take up arms. Because the first thing uh, the new regime did You know, this regime that was um, sponsored by the United States, uh, Victoria Newland, uh, admitted that uh, the United States has spent $5 billion trying to effect, quote-unquote, democratic change. Mm. Uh, The first thing they did in the RADA was to ban Russian as an official language. That may have been somewhat backtracked on, but still, that atmosphere that was created created a lot of fear in the East, which was manifested in Luhansk and uh, Donetsk, not so much in uh, Russian-dominated areas, uh, Russian-speaking dominated areas like Odessa, where um, it was difficult to uh, mount uh, some sort of military resistance. But uh, in Odessa, the ultra-nationalists, the Ukrainian ultra-nationalists, burnt alive um, many Russian speakers in in a municipal building. Mm. So I think that um, there is quite a lot to the idea of this distinct Russian-speaking people, some of the ethnic Russians, because we mustn't forget that, uh, you know, Ukraine has been this uh, country that has been a hodgepodge, you know, additions being made here and there, you know, Crimea only became a part of Ukraine through uh, Premier Khrushchev in uh, 1953 or so. Um, and <laughs> after the settlement of the uh, Second World War, Um, the eastern part of Germany had to cede territory to Poland and in return Poland had to cede some territory to Ukraine. 
So the multi-ethnicity of Ukraine is something to be factored in. And this is definitely a factor that has been taken into account by those who forecast some sort of a civil war, like William uh, J. Burns, the ambassador, who in 2008 wrote a then confidential memo, you know, niet means niet, you know, to NATO expansion, saying that this would be, you know, creating the conditions of, of a civil war. So I believe the people um, have no doubt they've been uh, helped by Moscow. But um, in terms of, you know, some sort of a self-activating mechanism for autonomy, that would have been automatically created by the events that occurred in February 2014. I mean, they were described by uh, George Friedman, a man who is uh, very uh, anti-Russian, as being uh, the most blatant coup d'etat in history. And so uh, I think the combination of those factors of what happened uh, to uh, overthrow Yanukovych at Maidan, and then afterwards, you know, incidents like the mass murder of Russians in Odessa, I think that was pointing towards a fracture possibly an irreparable fracture. Uh, but that fracture in Ukrainian uh, society was caused, of course, by its coup, which relied on these ultra-nationalists. Yes, I very much take your point. However, I just want to throw one thing in just by way of balance in the sense that uh, there's a lot of criticism of these ultra-nationalists and neo-Nazis, and I'm no friend of ultra-nationalists or neo-Nazis. However, digging back into the history, one has to accept, as one not, that there is a great deal of resentment that would be centred in and collected around the Holodomor, however you pronounce that, um, that they would see Russia as this hateful state that allowed all this starvation to take place. And I know that in some of their minds, they would think of that as a sort of Jewish Bolshevik thing. So, um, you know, that's part of the picture, isn't it? They do have this historical grudge in many cases. Um, that's true. Um, although to speak of the Holodomor, we, we must remember that there was uh, mass starvation in other parts of uh, Russia. So the extent to which that was the fault of the communist system itself, of forced collectivization, um, has to yes. be taken into account. And um, mm. a lot of observers have also mentioned that in contrast. So I think there has to be some sort of a middle ground here. Certainly a lot of the Ukrainian nationalists and the uh, ultra-nationalists have toned down their anti-Semitism. Uh, all of a sudden they are good far-rightists or good Nazis, but they were spewing out the typical issue of uh, the Holodomor having been caused by a Jewish-led uh, Bolshevik uh, apparatus, mm. uh, in the case of Ukraine, by Lazar Kaganovich. Um, but this may be where our conversation is developing to, in the sense that there is this argument that, oh, the far right are just minuscule, they don't perform well in elections, uh, every country has neo-Nazis, just like Russia has neo-Nazis, mm. everything's honky-dory. I, I would say, no, there's something under the carpet there, and it's very ugly. Um, mm. It's not Russian propaganda to mention this. I think while we can accept that these neo-Nazi parties uh, and ultra-right-wing parties haven't polled magnificently, if we look at their integration into civil 
political and military structures, they have a lot of weight. They also, I believe, have the power to seize power in uh, Ukraine. I believe that there are threats against Zelensky if he does want to uh, reach a deal with the Russians, both to overthrow him as well as against his life, just as in the way Dmitry Yarosh, uh, who once led Pravi Sector, threatened to overthrow President Poroshenko, the man who Zelensky beat at the polls. They are integrated. Uh, Yarosh today is an advisor to the chief of staff of the Ukrainian armed forces. The Azov Battalion, uh, who the West would want, uh, the media would want us to say is oh, a tiresome argument, uh, being neo-Nazis. Well, their foundational principles are based on the Nazi creed and the role Ukrainian ultranationalists played in collaborating with the Nazis uh, during the, the Second World War. And they have been integrated uh, into the Ukraine armed forces, complete with their wolf's angle insignia. I mean, how is that? How is that possible? Um, you have them being appointed to advise police chiefs in municipal areas. You have people like uh, C14 being given contracts to police Kiev. And when they get those contracts, they go about uh, on pogroms against uh, Roma gypsies. So they are very well integrated into the political, civil and military structures of the Ukraine. So that argument about denazification, I don't believe is an overestimation. Uh, I believe it's a real and present one. And I think there's been some sort of uh, an unholy alliance, uh, you know, because mm -hmm. in the year leading up to began you know, from 2013 to 2014, you all of a sudden had people like the leader of Svoboda at the time, Ole Tainibok, saying that uh, he was no longer an anti-Semite, no longer a, a racist. How does that happen overnight? Where these people suddenly <laughs> pledge this thing, and um, Victoria Newland was there along with John McCain. You know, uh, Newland was handing out cookies at, at Maidan. <laughs> But, you know, in the background were the um, privatized CIA NGOs being activated in mobilizing people uh, in these protests and funneling resources. Uh, this is a CIA playbook that goes back to the time when Mossadegh was overthrown by Operation Ajax in, in Iran. And you have this situation where Victoria Newland herself, who is uh, Jewish, as she mentioned, she's married to uh, Robert Kagan, uh, who formed the uh, an arch uh, neoconservative, uh, who was uh, part of the now defunct uh, project for the new American century. And she's shaking hands and meeting with uh, uh, far-right people of uh, Svoboda, you have at present Ihor Kolomoisky, a Jewish oligarch, a very powerful man, but uh, a very ruthless and corrupt oligarch. Uh, he's the, uh, if I could say colloquially, he's the political sugar daddy of uh, Mr. Zelensky uh, in terms of sponsoring him. Well, Kolomoisky sponsored uh, a lot of these far-right groups like the Azov Battalion, you know, how does one explain this? How does one explain a recent interview by the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League in the United States, where a, a person, a Jewish person in uh, of uh, substance in Ukraine is saying that, well, there's nothing wrong with these 
ultranationalist groups because they do not attack Jews and they do not attack Jewish institutions. We have Zelensky saying the same thing. Um, it's cool to support Bandera. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, just a few days ago, he gave a speech to the Greek parliament and brought an ethnic Greek member of the Azov battalion uh, to speak to the Greek parliament, which a lot of Greek people felt was very offensive since Greece suffered a lot uh, during the Second World War. So, mm. uh, you know, I'm not going to take it any further, but I will just put those points out there and let people concentrate their minds on that and make their minds up about what has happened in Ukraine. Yes, it's often said, isn't it, that because Zelensky is Jewish, none of these concerns are of any significance, which is far too simplistic. And of course, it brings up the question as to what it means to be Jewish, just as what it means to be Christian. You could say, well, so-and-so supports such policies, and yet they say they're a Christian. Well, what does that even mean? Cultural Christian? A professing Christian? There are so many questions embedded in there. Um, but going back to what you were saying about this denazification thing, okay, so if we accept that the ultranationalists and the, the neo-Nazis are a significant issue in Ukraine, what about this policy of denazification that Putin talks about. I'm not quite sure what that means. And if I think through to what might be the logical conclusion of that, is he actually saying that he wants to eradicate everybody in that country who has what he believes to be Nazi ideology? If, as you say, this is so much integrated in Ukrainian society, this would almost imply that he's talking about soldiers going in, pulling people out of their houses because they have some intelligence, possibly faulty intelligence, that they're connected to some Nazi group or ultranationalist group and dispatching them unceremoniously or whatever. You know, there are lots of images that come to mind in connection with this phrase that I think are quite frightening. I wonder what Putin really has in mind with this. Yeah, I think it obviously involves... A change of government that will be neutral at the very minimum to Moscow that will not appoint these people into the civil, political and military structures. Uh, America also had its denazification program. That also came to my mind. I mean, are we going to have a sort of a, a Moscow-like ideological program of forcing people, you know, indoctrinating them? From what I can see, it does appear that the goal now may be the balkanization of Ukraine. Yeah. So apart from the issues of, I don't know, indoctrination, forming a, a government in the East and a neutral government in the rest of Ukraine, if it does turn out to be balkanized, I think, yes, they would want to physically annihilate those of the Azov Brigade. I mean, some people say it's just uh, at a regimental level. You know, they're not more than a few thousand Azov people although they've been actually very critical in prosecuting the war in the Donbass because the Ukrainian armed forces was fairly weak uh, at the start of, of the conflict and they were found to be fairly effective. So I have no doubt about that, that uh, there might be uh, homicidal intentions against anybody who is uh, a soldier associated with the Azov people. Um, yes. Um, can I bring up this thorny issue of the killing of civilians? Um, our media, of course, is full of this. It pulls on the heartstrings. And of course, when anybody dies, whether it's a soldier or whether it's a civilian, it's a great tragedy, but particularly civilians. And I note that a British mainstream media or dinosaur media newsreader person who interviewed Sergei Lavrov, this was several weeks ago, she was putting to him the question, how can you possibly sleep at night when you know that your troops have killed children? And his uh, response to that was... Well, this is war. 
It's a great sadness when these things happen, but you must remember that the West invented the term collateral damage. And I thought, well, he had a point there. But on the other hand, we are getting these continual reports of deliberate targeting of civilians. I'm personally not persuaded that is an official Russian policy. I, at the moment, think that continues to be propaganda. What's your view about this, and particularly with regard to this situation in Bucha? Yes, I think um, I would tend to agree that it isn't a Russian um, policy, because I think just the whole nature of the way the war was conducted bears that out. Uh, Russia could have replicated mm. the American uh, NATO disposition to shock and awe tactics they could have used precision guided missiles and a massive air force bombing campaign to absolutely level ukrainian cities at great cost of life this is something nato have done without compunction in parts of iraq for instance and um, they have supported the actions of the saudi arabians in yemen um, the russians were more calibrated than that um, is there a, a gentle war no it's all such a tragedy. It's all such a mess and people will get uh, killed. But um, if there's an argument in the West that is an official Russian policy as a, some sort of state-sanctioned uh, policy to demoralize citizens, that cannot be the case. That cannot be the case. And it does invite the idea, as was experienced in Mariupol, that um, these forces in Ukraine, these ultranationalist forces, some of who are suspected of having shot at uh, Maidan protesters and um, police uh, with that sort of mentality may be behind uh, some of these nefarious actions. For instance, this purported um, targeting of a theater and a maternity ward in Mariupol. There is evidence out there from witnesses that claim it was the Ukrainian uh, uh, military, the Azov battalion, who nestled guns in and around civilian areas. That Russian policy, which is all about, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's uh, to do with Clausewitz, you know, if you used him as an analogy, it's to um, destroy armies, not destroy cities. And they are there to open these corridors, as happened in, in Syria. And uh, there's video evidence, uh, verbal evidence of uh, ethnic Greek Ukrainian citizens who were saying that uh, they were prevented from leaving Mariupol by members of the Azov Battalion. So they're using these people. And um, so far as the alleged uh, massacre is concerned, I think we need more analysis and examination of what happened it's unfortunate that uh, the Russian uh, request that there be a UN investigation yes. was turned down by Britain. Mm. Uh, we definitely need that because there are problems with chronology, there are problems with timelines. And uh, yes, Russia was, as I mentioned earlier in this program, uh, they were the perpetrators of the Kachin massacre of Polish, mainly Polish uh, military officers, but other members of the intelligentsia. But we can't just take it as a gospel truth no. uh, that they, when they were withdrawing, decided to take it out on the civilians and left all the bodies strewn there. Yes. I, I will not accept yes. that without some measure of detailed proof. Mm. 
it's not beyond anybody to act with madness, whether under control of, of officers or not. But um, I feel there's something very suspicious about the way that's developed. And I also feel that, um, yeah, it, it just needs further investigation. I totally agree with you. It seems to me that the burden of proof very much has to be on those making that accusation because we have a catalogue of lies that uh, proceed from these situations and the West is certainly not innocent uh, to that effect. We uh, just need to look at Syria for that, don't we? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. With Dumas in particular, yes. And on the face of it, I agree with you that it doesn't really make sense. It would be counterproductive. Why do that and provide material for Western propaganda, etc.? I, I don't take that. Um, and I think the burden of proof is very much there for the West to make that case, in which case you do need to have an investigation. And the, the evidence that I've seen so far doesn't seem to be that compelling, really. Something's gone on, people have died, but quite how to explain that, I don't know. So, yes, I agree with you. Um, that phrase in the Kibono comes to mind. It certainly does. Yeah. It really does. And there's also, um, bringing up what you just said, I mean, uh, there's a useful Anglo-Saxon legal phrase about he who asserts shall prove. Right. So uh, I think the onus, as you correctly say, is on those who are asserting that is the Russians. Indeed. And he who asserts shall prove and needs to prove really well if they have a history of lying. So, <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's, it, it's, actually, um, it's, it's, a big, it's a big shame. I mean, I'm old enough to remember, you know, tuning into shortwave radio and listening to mm -hmm. Radio Moscow. And, and, and that was really for a laugh. You know, we knew. <laughs> Do you know what? That's funny that you say that. I used to tune into Radio Tirana uh, Albania, uh, for a laugh because of the stilted yes. way they would produce everything. Absolutely. Celebrate how many tins of mackerel they'd produce this year. You know? <laughs> yes. You see, that's you know, that, that's the thing. But now Putin refers to the West as the empire of lies. And I certainly don't see that as somebody who is inventing something there. I think he's saying something that is based on a large amount of truth, you know, that there is a propaganda apparatus in effect. And unfortunately, the mainstream media, corporatized media, occasionally referred to as prostitutes, regurgitate this stuff and they reproduce NATO uh, and governmental policy without any scrutiny. At one time, the things that would come out of Moscow would be taken with a, with a pinch of salt. There was a lot of lying, there was a lot of cover-ups, there was a lot of stage managing. Today, I think it's gone full circle because why I brought up the idea of listening to the old broadcast from beyond the Iron Curtain was this need to ban RT and uh, other Russian stations. If you have nothing to hide, if you have nothing to fear, because the West during the Cold War certainly were not in the habit of blocking uh, Radio Moscow, uh, why choose to do that now unless you feel somewhat uh, challenged by it? That's the only conclusion I can come to. Absolutely. As I said in the conversation with Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, I didn't actually believe this invasion of Ukraine until I saw it on RT. And, <laughs> and that's not to say that I, I think, you know, everything that's on RT is the truth and everything that's on the BBC is false. But I just, my initial, you know, disbelief was, I thought it was incredulous about it. I thought, well, there's no way that's happened when I saw it on the BBC. So I had to check with those who were accused of doing it and they were admitting to it. That's gone. That's a huge shame. And I also note in passing this business about the guards who are supposedly heroic 
heroically killed on Snake Island um, <laughs> around the same day, I think it was, um, that I tuned into RT and there was video which was claiming to be them getting off the ship, walking back onto dry land. And I thought, what, just a minute, surely this must be Russian propaganda. Or maybe, maybe it's not. And it turns out that, in fact, they were still alive. The Jerusalem Post reported on that uh, subsequently. So, yes, it's a great pity that this balance has gone. I like to be able to watch one and the other to find out who was who was lying that day you know <laughs> yes you you have to you have to look at as many sources as possible I don't believe in censorship yeah. I mean within reason except with people are inciting violence etc mm-hmm. um, but you know if you're going to counteract uh, anything you need to have access to it in the first place mm-hmm. As you say, it is suggestive of something to hide, isn't it? You don't want people to have any access to the narrative you're trying to cover up. Which, of course, makes you and me Putin apologists, doesn't it? (laughs) Which I presume you would just see as I do, as simply as a way of stopping people's ears from listening to what we're saying. Absolutely. I think people need to be uh, more critical about things. They need Mm. to exercise their critical thinking resources and question things in the tradition of independence and freedom you are allowed to question what your government tells you Mm. not to be accused to be pathologized by saying that you are this uh, if you don't go according to the narrative i think we've we've seen this uh, more often than not uh, for instance including the covid narrative yes there's no nuance there's nothing in between you know, you're a devilish anti-vaxxer, you're Putin apologists, and you can be nothing mm. other than what the mainstream narrative is. Uh, that is, uh, I find it really disgusting. It's pathetic. Yes. And uh, it's very sad, ultimately. I totally agree with you. And I think there is a sense in which the establishment has benefited from all that propaganda over the last two years in conditioning people, though thankfully not everybody, to accept you know whatever authority says is the case. It was follow the science and now it's uh, follow the war propaganda. You know, so I think the fear mongering of the last two years has helped to feed into the current situation as well. But let me ask you, as I said, I would before we started this interview about this question of the just war. Um, and I, I will repeat that I'm not primarily interested in the moral questions about this conflict, but uh, rather the causes and reasons for it. But it would be interesting to get your views on this. Um, so. Russia presumably doesn't consider this to be a war as such. It's, it's not even an invasion. It's an operation as far as they're concerned, but you know, whatever they want to call it. Nevertheless, uh, any justification for it would need to be underpinned philosophically in a similar way. Mm-hmm. So I presume they're thinking in terms of self-defense, a long-range view perhaps of defending themselves. But also there's this idea, a much more proximal justification for the invasion as far as they're concerned, this idea of protecting others, protecting Russians speaking Ukrainians. Is this, in your view, then, a just war or operation or or whatever? Well, I think the first thing to mention is that uh, if we have recourse to what international law states, we would strictly have to say, no, it isn't. I mean, first of all, you only invade a foreign country if you do so at the behest or the approval of the United Nations through a resolution. That hasn't happened. Secondly, you invade only if there's a a cause of self-defense, you know, in an immediate fashion. Mm. So on those two counts, legally speaking, it would appear that it is an illegal action. Although 
when you think about international law and the way people bend the rules, obviously mm. what the Russians did is they bent things. And mm. after years of uh, the uh, separatists pleading for recognition, you know, the people from Lugansk and uh, Donetsk republics pleading for recognition, overnight Putin recognizes them and then accepts their request for aid. And so in that sense, they could kind of legitimize uh, their incursion. Um, certainly when it comes to Syria, I felt the Russians certainly had a right there because they were invited by the functioning central government, mm. whereas the Americans and other parties are there illegally, you know, Americans in the eastern part and Turkey. So that's what I would say about the legality of it. On the wider issue of is it just, well, if we follow our narrative, we can see how things have developed to an inevitability. It's not me giving an approval to it, mm. but it's me seeking an understanding of what uh, the accumulation of provocations would lead to. And I think if we just simply look at what um, the ambassador, William J. Burns, mentioned in his uh, cable, Niet means Niet, uh, it's available in WikiLeaks uh, as an open resource, it's clear that he could see that this would lead to civil war of some form. Um, and this is just the way in which it has occurred. And that civil war would involve Russia. It would inevitably, Burns said, involve Russia having to intervene in some fashion. So in that sense, I see not necessarily justification, but I see an understanding of the events which all parties knew would be an inevitability, given the pressures that were being placed on Russia. As I said, this overarching military and uh, economic policy towards Russia, it was always going to lead to this um, at some point. And unfortunately, it has led to this invasion here. So I don't justify it, but I can see it as being the inevitable. Okay. And apart from that internal memo sent by uh, William J. Burns, yet means yet, mm -hmm. uh, they can also look at a paper by the Rand Corporation from uh, 2019 titled um, Unbalancing and uh, Overextending Russia. Uh, it might be the other way around, overextending and unbalancing Russia. That has been the goal. And, and I think these think tanks do reflect the policy of the United States. In, you know, in regard to Syria, you had uh, a paper by the Rand Corporation called The Long War, which you know, gave a proper exposition of what was to be in terms of the interventions in Libya and Syria and or the tactics of utilizing fractures in Islam, you know, Sunni against Shia. Uh, in the same way, this paper by the Rand um, exposes what uh, is being done to Russia, and it's been designed to provoke uh, this unfortunate uh, resort to violence. Yes, I shall locate those documents, put them in the show notes, of course, and perhaps you could also send me something if you happen to come across it. Yes. Well, in connection with this, the other thing is that, of course, it has to be a last resort. And I put that to Paul Craig Roberts, and he said, well, they thought it was a last resort. Kind of dodges the question because, you no, know, does he think it's a last resort? Do you think it was a last resort? Um, I think uh, it was always building up to something like this. The question was, what would be the threshold, the pressure point? I, I, um, 
I think some form of Russian action would connote that this is the absolute red line. And unless you want to resort to a situation where both parties exchange nuclear weapons, what we're going to do will will end it all. But of course, that doesn't factor in the issue of uh, of an insurgency. If Ukraine is going to be balkanized, it's possible that this mass exodus of refugees is in a situation where we have uh, a lot of uh, Ukrainians, that is, those who do not identify as Russian, leaving Ukraine so that you're providing eastern Ukraine, probably central parts and southern part of Ukraine, with a natural demographic in favor of the Russian speakers or those who claim Russian ethnicity. Uh, And that would make it easier to make it as a kind of a a final thing that ends the previous uh, uh, provocations. But um, we we don't know for Mm -hmm. sure. There is always this aspect of an insurgency hanging about, which the West and the neoconservatives and the American exceptionalists wish to promote. And um, a lot of Ukrainians will willingly go for this, not just those who are on the ultra-nationalist side, but um, that's what they've done in the past, you know, with the, for instance, the Ukrainian insurgent army. Not many people realize that uh, after the Soviet Union had accomplished the conquest of Nazi Germany and uh, into the Cold War years, they were still fighting against the Ukrainian insurgent army until the, I think, the early 1950s. And during the Second World War, you know, they uh, killed one of Russia's most celebrated uh, generals, uh, General Nikolai Vatutin, a very young man when he died. Um, So a lot of them will be geared up for this uh, as a way in which their nationhood can be reasserted, because uh, unfortunately, this is where Ukraine as a nation, which, you know, through the, the through the ages, it was always difficult to calibrate this nation. You know, uh, the, the approximations in history were were not really well founded uh, as a Ukrainian state. So you have to look at the, the First World War, where essentially the German general staff headed by um, Field Marshal Paul um, von Hindenburg and um, General Eric Ludendorff were people who actually tried to ensure the creation of a Ukrainian state. And then you fast forward to uh, Nazi Germany when Stepan Bandera mm. uses the Nazi invasion as a as a means in which uh, Ukrainian nationhood could be uh, recreated. And unfortunately, we will see that uh, Ukrainians in the past, relying on the Germans in their revolutions politic, relying on Nazi Germany, now relying on NATO, will feel that this is a chance to, you know, invent a new Ukraine and, um, you know, and it's based on fighting the enemy, the Russians. It doesn't bode well for the future. So I don't think that... Uh, this ends everything. Unfortunately, the impression will be that, yes, you strike and you conquer and you divide and you settle things once and for all. That is good in theory. But in practice, unfortunately, it might lead to something that is a bit more long and drawn out. Yes. And of course, it's confirmed what the media has said about Putin for so long, that he's the new Hitler. Well, there you go. There's the evidence of it now. It's a self so self-fulfilling thing you know you prod somebody and then they react and Mm. i think his reactions have basically been calibrated there was provocation from georgia 
He reacted, but withdrew from Georgia. There was a provocation in uh, Kiev, uh, the coup d'etat in 2014. He reacted by just taking Crimea, but nothing further. And, um, you know, on and on it's gone. So Hitler wasn't a reactive person. He had his vision of Lebensraum and uh, expansion. Mm. There's no evidence that Putin has done it. Any uh, sort of expansion he may have done Mm. has been as a reaction to something. We can say, uh, well, could he not have used war as a resort? Mm. Could he have maintained uh, anything, keeping pressure on the borders, etc.? I don't know. At some point, uh, the whole feeling was that things would snap. Well, that's what I put to Paul Greg Roberts. I said, why can't they just hang around the border with hundreds of thousands of troops there and just poise and say, look, there's no way you're going to have any nuclear missiles on this soil. There's no way you're going to make any motion towards joining NATO. And if you do, we're pouncing. And yeah. I'm thinking, wouldn't that have had the same effect? I, I, I think, but yeah. you're still not doing anything. You're still just threatening. It's just like Russia's use of its um, energy, the blackmail. You know, they still haven't yet... Uh, stop supplying Europe, which could yeah. cause, uh, you know, it could be devastating. I mean, Europe yes. is already feeling the effects of the blowback from its own sanctions. And um, I think the Russians felt that they needed to act at this point because otherwise they would be seen as, you know, proverbial paper tigers saying something but not actually doing anything about it. But then that goes to what Paul Craig Roberts was saying, that uh, perhaps they should indeed have cut off gas supplies. Would that not have been the way to go? That wouldn't be paper tiger activity, would it? That would be quite decisive and very, very damaging. Yes. But it wouldn't be so easy to spin as the work of Hitler as an invasion is. Or, or, or to, you know, as a murderer, you know, because your action in war is obviously inevitably going to kill hmm. people. Well, so so is turning off gas supplies. It's, well, yes. Uh, <laughs> but it's very indirect, isn't it? It, it, it wouldn't it be would quite be. so easy to spin that one. Yes, it, hmm. it, it would be. That's correct. I think um, that may have been one uh, resort. And uh, if he was uh, prepared to absorb the sanctions that have come his way, then, you know, removing the gas, you know, or reducing it severely, that would have been another mechanism to use. Uh, That's that's interesting, something that definitely should be weighed up because we should always see war as an evil and uh, as a very, very last resort. And uh, the question is, was this a last resort? Yes. Yes, I'm still not persuaded, obviously, that it was a last resort. And I do see it as a great evil, you know, notwithstanding all the the background to this, which we've been discussing. And I'm very grateful to you for doing that. Um, okay, so the issue of sanctions comes up with this, of course. Um, sanctions have come Russia's way anyway, whatever it does. Um, and as I said to Paul Craig Roberts, it looks to me and to many people that uh, this is going to backfire on the West that this is going to be used by Russia to cement its um, alternative arrangements, trading arrangements, financial arrangements, the creation of even new institutions with uh, countries that it does business with, of course, uh, traditionally the BRICS nations, etc. And this actually might serve significantly to weaken the West. Um, What's your view of that? Yes, absolutely. I think uh, these cumulative, uh, even before this uh, extraordinary um, event of uh, the invasion of Ukraine, the policy of the West was always pushing Russia and China together, much to the detriment of the West. I just feel that if the West stands for freedom, uh, democracy, a rules-based international order, 
it should have approached and it should approach things in a much different way. But people refuse to acknowledge this. You know, the aggression, the, the strive to maintain hegemony by all means, you know, the sort of usury and uh, practices of the global institutions or finance, uh, America's projection of its power since the ending of the Cold War, you know, in total disregard of international law. All of these things, especially its use of sanctions, uh, I don't know what the figure is. I mean, we know about Venezuela. We know certainly about Iran. Uh, so we know about Syria, which the West uh, failed in its bid to overthrow Assad. And now it's sanctioning them, which would, I presume, cost lives to Syria apart from uh, America's occupation of Syria's oil-producing eastern region. We've seen sanctions in Iraq, where the recently deceased uh, Madeleine Albright said it was worth it, you know, the death of a minimum of half a million children. So sanctions in themselves, um, they've been proven to be uh, obviously harsh measures, but they've also been proven to not work. They've tended to actually make the person it's uh, aimed against more self-sufficient so indeed as you've mentioned uh, what russia will do it will turn eastwards this will probably inaugurate the feared rise of eurasia and uh, they will create new you know forms of international uh, monetary payments new global institutions and uh, develop trade in different ways uh, than we've so far been used to under the um, ages of America, where dollar has been king. This has led to de-dollarization, no question about it. And it will lead probably irrevocably to the uh, diminution of the uh, dollar as being the de facto uh, international uh, reserve currency. It's backfiring in a big way, I must say. Yes, indeed. We seem to be living in a world of increasing own goals and general craziness. Fascinating stuff, Adi Inka. As always, a delight and an education to speak with you. So much more that I could ask you about this subject, but we've been chatting a long time and I don't want to overface listeners with too much to take in in one sitting, so to speak. So I am grateful to you for coming back on the programme for number two in this series of, of looking at the Ukraine crisis. I don't know how long this series will continue. It might uh, end with number two. Uh, who knows? We shall see. But I, I'm quite sure that this business, unfortunately, will drag on for quite some time yet. So there'll probably be an opportunity to discuss this with other guests in the days ahead. So um, as I say, I'm grateful to you, very grateful to you for coming on and bringing your understanding of military history and uh, international relations and, and for sharing your interpretation of these events. It's great to be able once again to pick your brains on the show. So thank you ever so much indeed for your time and insights on these matters. Thank you very much, Julian. It was a pleasure. Show notes for this program can be found at The Mind Renewed, themindrenewed.com. Podcast music by the brilliant Anthony Rijakoff, attribution non-commercial share like 4.0 International. You have been listening to me, Julian Charles, and my guest, Adyinka Mackinday, and I very much look forward to speaking to you again in the near future. <laughs>